0: have a Bible, please open to the book of Acts chapter 21 today. Today we return to our 2019 theme, magnify, magnify Christ. Paul said, I will magnify Christ whether by life or by death. We'll be going through the book of Philippians verse by verse, truly one of my favorite New Testament epistles. But before we get to Philippians 1.1, it will open up our understanding into full color if we see the events leading up to Paul's first imprisonment. And so for the next three weeks, we'll see what is happening in the closing chapters of Acts. So if you really want to magnify Christ in your life, then you'll need to answer yes to these three questions. Here's the first one. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Next week, am I willing to share my testimony everywhere? And then, am I willing to let God change my plans? Would you please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 21 as we answer the question, Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Acts 21, Paul returning from his third missionary journey. We begin in verse 1. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto cause... And the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand, and sailed unto Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said in Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. We kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. Drop down to verse 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea certain prophet named agabus and when he was come unto us he took paul's girdle bound his own hands and feet and said thus saith the holy ghost so shall the jews at jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girl girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the gentiles and when we heard these things both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to jerusalem then paul answered What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart, for I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. As we pray this morning, I'm going to ask you to join me to pray for a pastor that is in prison in China. His name is Pastor Joseph Gu. He gave me the pin that I'm, I'm wearing today. He gave it to the joiners and to the Davises and I several years ago. He's been arrested. He's been in prison. And he has answered the question, am I willing to suffer for Christ? Am I willing to be in prison for Christ? And, and he is. The Bible says, remember them that are in bonds. So, we're going to do that this morning and ask you to join me and I'm sure many others that are in prison for their faith. May we pray. Our Father, we come into your presence. We ask you now to do a spiritual work in all of our hearts. Arrest our attention. May we put away the distractions that will hinder us from hearing the Word of God and the voice of the Spirit of God in our conscience. Father, I pray that. Truly, we could answer yes to the question, am I willing to suffer for Christ? I pray for Pastor Joseph Gu. I pray for his wife. He's been in prison for a couple of years. And if it be your will to release him, we pray that you would. We pray for good health. We pray for him to be strong in the faith. We pray for his witness to other inmates and to the guards. We pray that someone will come to our president to make a plea on his behalf, that he in turn could make a plea on behalf to the president of China for his release. Now, Lord, do a spiritual work in our hearts. That there be one here today in this auditorium that knows not Christ. Convict them and draw them. Help them to sense the urgency of the hour to receive Jesus today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Do you have a cause to live for? Are you so committed to that cause that you are willing to suffer and even die for it? A few years ago, Sports Illustrated had an interesting article. Iowa State named the new football stadium for an ex-football player, And not as ordinarily happens to the heftiest contributor. The player, Jack Trice by name, was no All-American except for one game, the only game he ever played for, for the Cyclones. Now that was 90 years ago. Memory of Trice on the Ames campus in Iowa had all but vanished until an English teacher became curious about a, a plaque attached to the old gym under a coat of dust And bird droppings was a tribute to Trice. Jack Trice was a married sophomore in 1923. He was the first African-American on the football team. Because of that, he was kept out of the first two games of the season. But the team and coaches rallied behind him. And he started against Minnesota, there, in Minneapolis. Ahead 14 to 10 in the third quarter, Minnesota ran a cross-buck play, and the Iowa State defensive line crumbled and trice, rushed in to close the gap. He stopped the play, but fell on his back, and three charging Minnesota players ran over him. As he was carried off the field, Minnesota fans chanted, "We're sorry. We're sorry!" After being checked down in the hospital, Trice returned home on a bed of straw in a railroad car. Two days later, he died of internal bleeding. The day Trice was buried, friends found a note in his jacket that he had written to himself on the night before the game, titled, My Thoughts Just Before the First Real College Game of My Life. It read, The Honor of My Race My family and myself is at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about the field. Every time the ball is snapped, I will be trying to do more than my part. Now you can have a couple of different reactions to that. You can be analytical and you can say, well, well, that man was foolish. Anybody who would give his life for something as insignificant as a football game needs counseling. But you don't think that, do you? Most of us admire the conviction he had for his cause. Why? We say, here's a man with a cause and courage, even though carrying a piece of a Pigskin across the white line isn't very significant in life. In fact, In fact, it doesn't matter at all after you die, and it certainly isn't a cause worthy of dying for that there's something that somebody would give their life for a cause. It speaks about conviction and about courage, doesn't it? As foolish as it is to die for a college football game, it's it's the commitment of the man who believed in something enough to abandon his own self-pleasure for his cause. In fact, in in the first quarter, uh, Trice was injured. He broke his collarbone, but he refused to quit playing. You'll find that throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, And Caleb, David said, is there not a cause? Daniel, Isaiah. And here we find the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Now, Paul is is just finishing his third missionary journey, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. It was a massively successful, uh, fruitful time of people being saved and churches started, but not without satanic opposition. And so verses 1 to 3 describes his journey towards Jerusalem. And notice, number one in your notes, Paul made a decision Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem Paul is now determined to go and we have two reasons he's determined to go for two reasons number 1 to show the Jewish church that the Gentile churches the Gentile Christians love them and the evidence of that love is a special offering that the apostle Paul has been taking up for several years you see those those Jews are are suffering from persecution they're suffering from famine. And so we have the books of Corinthians and Philippians that talk about this offering. From that we learn we're supposed to worship on Sunday and we're supposed to bring our offerings to church. And and this offering will be a a boost to their morale. It'll give them a shot in the arm to keep on being faithful in the Lord's work. Why go to Jerusalem where there's a, a second reason and that is to bring unity to the Jewish and Gentile churches. You see, there are are some that are so committed to their Judaism, they're having a hard time assimilating with the Gentiles. But grace, on page 2, grace is the glue that brings believers together. There are some radical differences in worship styles between the Jews and the Gentiles, but grace, grace is greater than their differences. You can't read Acts 21 without asking this question. Is Paul making a mistake Going to Jerusalem is he stepping outside the will of God. Why didn't he listen to the wise counsel of his friends? Why did his friends keep saying, Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? Well, I think it's pretty obvious why, because the Jews of the Roman Empire hated Paul. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. He goes to a city and he goes into the synagogue and he he opens the Old Testament and he shares Christ and some believe and some get mad and then they throw him out of the synagogue and he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches and they get saved and baptized and they start a church and then those Jews chase him and so he leaves that city and he goes to a new city and he goes right into the synagogue and he opens the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 and he preaches Christ to them and some get saved and some get mad and they throw him out of the synagogue and he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches and they get saved and they start a church and, and then the Jews from the first city follow him and chase him and begin to persecute him again. I mean, they hate him. At Lystra, they even stoned him. And now, now the Apostle Paul is going to go to the Jewish headquarters, Jerusalem. He didn't have a chance. He's going from the frying pan into the fire. Paul had the courage to go forward without worrying about the consequences. Do you see his commitment? I'm going to Jerusalem. That's courage, that's conviction. Do you see that kind of conviction in following Christ? And so we have to ask, are, are you willing to suffer for Christ? Uh, look back in Acts 20, verse 3. And there were about abode three months when the Jews laid in wait for him as he was about to sail to Syria. He purposed to return through Macedonia. He changed his plan and went across land. Uh, Macedonia is where Philippi is. Now, we see his team listed there in verse 4. He had a missionary team of Sopater and Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. And they were going to travel ahead by ship and land at Troas and regathered. Uh, these men are from different p- Roman provinces. Paul's going to come back and give a missionary report. Our missionaries come back and they show slides and video. He's going to come back and say, Here, here's a man saved in this province. Here's a man saved in this province. Here's a man saved in this province. It's going to be a pretty impressive missionary uh, report back. But God changed the plans. And the plans are, are because, of, because of these men are laying in wait to kill him. Now, Paul knew the difference between trusting God and taking foolish chances. He's willing to suffer for Christ, but if it isn't going to to advance the cause of Christ, there's no reason to be an early martyr. He changes his plans, and he goes through Philippi, and he picks up his faithful companion, Dr. Luke, and he rejoins him. Now from here on in Acts, Luke uses pronoun we, and Luke is the writer, so every time you see we, Luke is now with the Apostle Paul. Here are some lessons we can learn from this. First of all, hold all personal plans loosely. If anyone could claim a direct line to heaven, it's Paul. I mean, God used him in amazing ways. He preaches the gospel, he starts churches, he heals the sick, he even raised the dead. But even the Apostle Paul ran into circumstances that he could not change, and so will you. He made plans, and his enemies forced him to change the plan. Here's the 11th commandment. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. It's a good lesson for all of us to learn. Here's a lesson. Don't waste time in being distressed over a ruined plan. Uh, I've been in the ministry long enough now where uh, I've had occasions where a, a, a disrupted plan turned out to be a gift in disguise. What I thought was a closed door was God's way of steering me, and may I say you, to a better future. And that's why you are in this location today. Broken plans can be gifts that God can change. Number three, be prepared to adapt your plans when circumstances change. The Marines never engage the enemy without a clear objective and a detailed plan. Over 200 years of combat experience have taught the Marines that the first moments of battle can change everything except the objective. And so they drill this mantra into combat-ready warriors from the recruits all the way up to the commandant. Improvise, adapt, overcome. And here's one, number four. Never forget that your change of plans was always God's plan A. And so from Paul's perspective, the plot to kill him made him go from plan A to plan B. But from God's perspective, this was plan A all along. God had planned for him to go through Philippi and pick up Luke and take Luke to Jerusalem with him. And so now we find Paul's Discouragement to go to Jerusalem. Back in Acts 21, the Christians at Tyre. We see that in verse 4. Finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. Who said to Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go to Jerusalem. With Luke and his entourage of Gentile fellow helpers, he sailed south, made their way to Tyre, the north part of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. He fellowship with these Christians for seven days, and they just he touched their hearts. You know, it'll happen for you if you will have a missionary in for dinner, if you will have a missionary into your home, if you'll keep a missionary, if you will, when you take a vacation, you visit a missionary, uh, your your heart is going to be touched, and rather quickly. They love Paul. They don't want him to go to Jerusalem. They know they will try and kill him if he goes. Notice the phrase, through the Spirit. Now, here's why some Christians think Paul made a mistake in going to Jerusalem. Did the Holy Spirit give conflicting instructions to Paul? I know some pastors that think Paul made a mistake by going to Jerusalem because of this verse and because he did a Jewish vow when he got there and because he got arrested. No one is above making mistakes, even, even apostles. We know the apostle Peter made a mistake and Paul confronted him. He rebuked him in Galatians. Though it is possible for Paul to make a mistake, I don't think he did. I don't think he made a mistake going to Jerusalem for several reasons. Why? Paul lived his life sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Earlier, when the Spirit forbade him to go a certain place, he listened. He listened to that. Secondly, uh, Paul's motives for going to Jerusalem are pure. He wants to take the Gentile offering. He wants to help uh, the Jewish church. Good motives. And then the Holy Spirit's leading in his life, Acts 20, 22. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem not knowing the things that shall befall me. Uh, we find that in Acts 20, 22. Uh, notice on page three, the worry or arrest of death is not going to stop him from going. His commitment is clear. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to deliver the offering. I'm going to unite Jews and Gentile Christians together. He had some goals. Do you have any goals? Do you have any goals? If you don't have any goals, you'll hit them every time. <laughs> it's easy. You're shooting at nothing. Paul said, Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to Rome. He gets to Rome. He said, I'm going to Spain. You know, I think if they didn't behead him, I think he would have discovered America I and mean, gone over here and said, I got to get the gospel to the Indians. I mean, the man's on a mission. He's got a job to do <coughs> and no one is going to stop him. He has courage. He has commitment. You might say, I want courage. I want to be courageous. You can't be courageous without a commitment to a mission. But if you ask the average Christian, what's your goal? What are your top three objectives? Many Christians would say, well, what do you mean? (laughs) If you don't, if you don't, If you have to think about it, then you haven't defined them. Let let me give you a couple from my life. Some goals. Number one is to know Christ. Philippians 3.10. That that gives him glory, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. My goal is not simply to know the Bible. I want to know Christ. I need to know the Bible, to believe the Bible, to obey the Bible. I can't do that unless I come to church with the heart to hear and follow what I hear. and, And that's how I can know Christ is through the Written Word of God to fulfill the great Commission. Those are the goals of our church. glorify God, fulfill the Great Commission. Acts 1:8. we'll see more about that next week, sharing Christ. And then number three, to feed God's flock, to feed God's flock. When you come, I give you the Word of God. Take heed therefore to yourselves, to all the flock. Over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, pastors, leaders to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Acts twenty twenty eight. Do you have any spiritual goals in your life? Maybe to, to win a husband or a wife to Christ, maybe to win a son or daughter to Christ, maybe to win a mom or dad to Christ or a sibling. Ha, do you have any co workers that are unsaved? To win a co worker to Christ, to win a, a neighbor to Christ, to win a boss to Christ? Are you willing to pay any price to do that? Are you willing to sacrifice your own self-will, your own pleasure to fulfill a spiritual objective? I think of Patrick Henry. What did he say? Give me liberty or give me... It's commitment. It's courage. John Knox prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. It was a passionate plea for a man willing to, to die, preaching the gospel to share Christ with his countrymen to bring salvation. Paul is the leader of this mission team and he made his decision. And so look at verse 5. They say, don't go. And verse 5, when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us into our way, the wives, the children. We went out of the city. We kneeled down on the shore and they prayed. And they submitted to his leadership. They didn't agree with him, but they submitted to his leadership. And that's what spirit-filled people do. Who discouraged Paul from going to Jerusalem? It was the Christians at Tyre, but it was also Agabus the prophet. In verse 10, And as we tarried there many days, they have now come down to Caesarea Mamertine on the Mediterranean coast. We tarried there many days. Uh, There came down from Judea a prophet named Agabus. And when he was come to us, he took Paul's girdle, his belt, bound his hands, bound his feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus the prophet comes down, God speaks to the prophet, and he takes Paul's belt and he he sits down, and what he does is he ties his hands and he ties his feet together. So you see Christian drama doesn't go back just like 40 years, it goes all the way back 2,000 years. And he binds it with Paul's his belt, his girdle, and he says, hey, hey, God told me that the man who owns this belt is going to be bound just like this by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. Now, like the Christians attire, through the spirit, they said, don't go. It was not a prohibition, but a preparation. It was a warning. Paul, if you're going to go to Jerusalem, count the cost. If you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. You go to Jerusalem, you're going to be incarcerated. You're going to be imprisoned. Who discouraged Paul from going to Jerusalem? The entire missionary team. Uh, verse 12. And when we heard, we, there's, there's Luke. We and that whole group that I mentioned, Sopater, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. We, we say... And that includes himself, we say, don't go. And then who else? Philip the evangelist. We find him uh, uh, here as well. Verse 12 says, they of that place, that's Philip, Philip the deacon, Philip the one who had the great revival in Samaria, they besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so you have all these people saying, don't go. But Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem is found in verse 13. Listen to the courage, the commitment. Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am not ready to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, yes, I am willing to suffer for Christ. I am Willing not only to be arrested, but to die for Christ. That's courage. Paul believes he's doing the will of God. His motives are right. His objective is clear. Share the gospel. Deliver the offering. Bring unity to the believers. And Paul's team finally accepted his leadership that it was the will of God to go to Jerusalem. We see it in verse 14. And we, and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of God of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. On the top of page four, you see some guidelines for seeking and giving advice. And Paul has just been through this. What can we learn from this? Well, we can learn, first of all, seek counsel from God himself first. And that's what Paul did. He went to God first. Be faithful in Your Bible study. Be faithful in your church attendance. Be faithful with an open heart to hear God's message. Uh, You know, turn off the social media and and turn on God's word. Number two, if you seek advice, be discerning. Go to godly family. Go to godly friends that you respect. and, And go before you made your decision. I mean, if you've already made your decision, don't waste people's time asking for advice. Do not seek counsel from those who are not walking with God. Psalm 1. Number three, if you give advice, be wise. Learn to listen much and talk little. Force yourself into the other person's situation. Try to look at things from God's perspective. Don't give your preferences or opinions as if they are God's word. They're not. Allow for grace. Allow for differences of opinions. Number four, if you decide against the advice of others, be careful. You see, people are fallible God's word is always accurate. So when God gives a leader a vision, look how God's people respond in verse 14. He could not be persuaded, so we ceased. We don't agree with it, but they ceased, and they said, the will of the Lord be done. And so let her be there, be gracious with believers who disagree with you. Be gracious with believers who disagree with you. Now understand, Paul's been to the Gentiles. He comes to the Jerusalem church. He gives a report back and they rejoice. Verse 19. And and when he had saluted them, he declared, or verse 17, and when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, that's Pastor James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what Things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Stop. So they give the missionary report and say, Yeah, that's great. All these Gentiles getting saved. They rejoice, but now look how they frown. Look what happens next. They said to him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the actions. Paul, we heard some bad news. The bad news is, you are asking the Jews to cast off Judaism. And they ask Paul now to, to silence these critics. we want you to do something. Here's what we want you to do. Verse 22, what, what is it, therefore, the multitudes must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charge with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. What happened? Verse 26. Paul took the men the next day of purifying himself with them, entered to the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until the offerings should be offered for every one of them. You understand what's going on here is, is Paul comes, gives the report, and they say, uh, uh, the, the, the Jews here think that you're, you're saying do away with Moses, so Paul, do this, do this for us. Join these four men, shave your head, and do the Jewish purification. Do you think Paul wanted to do this? Not at all. Was Paul willing to do this? He did it. What do we learn from this? Don't be so hard-nosed. Be gracious with other believers who disagree with you. There's coming a day when Jewish worship is going to be completely abandoned. Uh, down here in Philadelphia, 100 years ago, Dr. Donald Barnhouse used to say, the book of Hebrews was written to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews, all right? The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. So God allowed that temple to be destroyed in 70 AD, and the Jewish worship has never been the same. That temple will not be rebuilt until the future tribulation. Now here's one. Another lesson we learn here is keep the gospel the main thing. Keep the gospel the main thing. Paul said to the Jew, I became a Jew. So he's willing to do this vow to reach Jewish people. As far as your spiritual life and walk with God, don't lose your focus. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. You can't be forgiven of all of your sins and spend eternity with the Lord in heaven unless Jesus Christ is in your heart as Lord and Savior. You're going to hear it again and again. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So we are all clear what is the main thing? The main thing is salvation. Just I just saying it's it's Jesus only. It's Jesus only. Without Jesus in your life, without Jesus in your heart, you have no hope. You have no hope. And then baptism. You see, the first step of obedience after salvation is to be baptized. You say, that's part of the main thing? It is. It's part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and then teaching them. That's discipleship. Discipleship is part of the main thing. Sanctification. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And then love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one to another. This is the main thing, salvation and baptism and discipleship and sanctification and love, uh, sharing our faith. That's the great commission. These things are not the main thing. Politics. Do I get an amen? Amen. Politics is not the main thing. If you are not saved, it doesn't matter if you have health care and it doesn't matter if there's a wall built on the border. What matters is if Jesus Christ is in your heart. Politics is not the main thing. Resentment against family. Have you ever heard anyone say, "Oh, I don't, I don't shop at Wegmans because my sister shops at Wegmans. You ever hear anybody say that? Well, I don't go to that church because my sister goes to that church. That doesn't make any sense. I don't go to church for a family member. I go to church for Jesus. Right? I go to church for Jesus. Resentment against family members. Dress standards. Everyone is welcome at Valley Forge Baptist. If you see anyone talking to a visitor and making them feel uncomfortable or unwelcome because of what they're wearing, you are deputized to interfere. You're a deputized to go and say, oh, No, you're welcome here. You are welcome here. Read James chapter 4. This is important that we all get it. You don't tell people how they're supposed to dress when we're trying to get the gospel to them. Idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies. Now a lot of things can fit in this category. Let me give you one illustration. It's my seat. Sorry. It's by C. You're up there. Okay. I, Jack, I just want you to stand up for a second. John, if you'll come down here. Jack, just go back about five steps back. John, if you want to sit here. Can you imagine, <laughs> in your wildest dreams, that John would be so bold to sit in the third row back in Jack's seat? So Jack's coming in. Come here, Jack. He comes down and he says, Hey, John. He shakes his hand extends the right hand of fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) Let me show you to your seat. (laughs) And he says to him, you're my seat. You're my seat. You can be seated. My brother says, we don't save seats, we save souls. All right? (laughs) Now, if if it's your seat, back in the good old days, they did that, right? Back 200 years ago in the denominational churches, you bought your pew. I mean, Washington had his pew. You go to, go to the museums and you'll see they bought their pew. You want to give $5 million for a new building? We, we, will, we will let you buy your pew, all right? <laughs> but until then, it, 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 is, it is first come, first serve. You don't say to someone, that's my seat. You come early if you want that seat. <laughs> Idiosyncrasies. That is not the main thing. Notice, also, past church hurts. I moved here 35 years ago. I've lived in a condominium, townhouse, in a house. Do you know that, that twice, not once, but twice, I invited neighbors, next-door neighbors to come to church. Oh, I won't go. I won't go to, I don't go to any church. Why? Because, because when my dad died... When my dad died, the reverend said, the priest said, We're not going to have your dad's funeral at our church. Even though he's a member of the church. Can you wrap your mind and emotions around that? You're grieving, you've lost your dad, and the church says, Not here. Not now. And that gave religion such a black eye. It was the first few months, the starting of Valley Forge Baptist. I was knocking on doors in King of Prussia. Prince Frederick Road, it's where the Rudders actually lived. And I would go down the row and I walk up a driveway. It was, it was a, a, a warm fall afternoon and man was an elderly man sitting out front and this lady comes down the driveway and as she's coming down the driveway I'm walking up and so I I pull out the track and I say hey I'm Pastor Scott Wendell Valley Forge Baptist starting a new church here in the middle school just around the corner and she said I just have one question can you tell me how to be saved it's like (laughs) it's like winning the lottery spiritually and so uh, I go in her bible is open on her table And so I open the Bible, and I go through the gospel, and she prays. She's been seeking God. She's been reading the Bible, and she got saved. And her husband, he's got advanced Alzheimer's. He can't even speak. He can't even speak. So she starts coming to church, and I go back, and I had my discipleship lessons. I only had three lessons, A, assurance, B, baptism, C, church. And we finished the lessons, and she said, I want to get baptized, and so I set it all up. I could only do it every couple of months because, because the, they had a pool, but it was three and a half feet deep and they didn't want me drowning anybody. So I, I didn't have to just hire a lifeguard. I had to hire a WSI, a water safety instructor. And they'd make sure I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, drown anybody. And so I get it all set up. And, and so I have some people getting baptized and I call her on Saturday and Do you have any questions about baptism and this and that. And, and she says, oh, I, I can't get baptized. I said you can't I said why she said so I called the priest and the priest said if you get baptized in that church we will not do your husband's funeral and he will not be allowed to be buried in the church cemetery welcome to the ministry this is spiritual warfare I never saw her again but I will see you in heaven. Past church hurts shouldn't stop you from coming to worship the Lord Jesus. Here's one. Music preferences. If God, if God was so concerned about the quarter note and the 16th note and 2-3 and 3-3 and 3-4 and 4-4 and mild syncopation, don't you think he would have written something about it in the Bible? Favored personalities. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Past traditions. Man-made customs. Side issues. The main thing is the main thing. The Great Commission. Letter D, one more. Accept difficult trials as part of the will of God. I'll not read verses 27 to 40, but Paul is falsely accused. Paul is attacked. Paul is arrested. But he used the opportunity to share the gospel. Paul would no longer travel the highways and byways of the empire. The Lord had prepared others to do that. Instead, the apostle would now begin to preach to kings, to emperors, to Caesar's household. You see what Satan meant for evil? God turned it into good. God can take your trials and he can let you share the gospel through them as well. Paul will later write that the bad things that happened under him happened for the furtherance of the gospel. God is amazing. And he takes our hard times and he glorifies himself to spread the gospel. And so in your notes, can you think of a broken dream, a failed romance, a difficult medical issue, a change of plans, but now now you you can look back and see the hand of God at work. I can, and if you walk with God, you can too. When you make the commitment to follow Christ, no matter what, God will give you the courage of conviction and you will magnify Christ. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? And many Christians, they're not even willing to be embarrassed for Christ. To speak up for the Lord. How about when the usher's in the back doing this? You know what that means? That means scooch over some. Oh, I'm willing to suffer for Christ, but I'm not willing to scooch over. (laughs) You know what Jack Trice said the day before he died? I will be willing to do more than my part. How about you? Are you willing to do more than your part for Jesus Christ? May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the powerful word of God, Paul's example to us. May you bless in this invitation. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven. I have trusted Jesus as my Savior, I have full assurance. That heaven is my home. Would you simply raise your hand if you have that testimony all over? God bless you. You may put your hand down. You say, Pastor, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I'm not sure I have doubts. God wants to take away your doubts today and give you Christ. If you sense the Spirit of God convicting you, drawing you, sense the urgency right now, receive the Lord, call upon the name of the Lord. I'll lead you in the salvation prayer. My my prayer won't save you, but you can pray and ask Christ to come into your life, and he will forgive your sin. You believe that he died for you and rose again. Anyone like that today, I want to be saved. Would you raise your hand? Would you hold it up high? I want to receive Jesus as my Savior right now, right here. It's not getting baptized. It's not joining the church. It's a living relationship with the God who loves you, anyone at all, I want to be saved. Christian, are you willing to suffer even a little bit for Christ? To stand for him, to be bold, to be courageous, to care more about what God thinks than what strangers that you don't even know think. Father, bless in our invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand together, as we stand and sing in my life, be glorified, sing it as a prayer to the Lord. If you have a decision to make, to join the church, to be baptized, to pray at the altar, you come. You step right out. Want to see a pastor, pastor's wife, you come as we sing. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16 tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 16. David, a man after God's own heart. First message on David, we looked at David's family tree. And we'll mention that tonight as well, going back into the book of Ruth and seeing where David's great-grandparents came from and their faith. And, and the second message on David was Psalm 51. It was the night of the Lord's Supper. And how appropriate to be able to see a a man who was a king who, who apparently disqualified himself by his actions, but because of the grace of God, because of the magnificent forgiveness, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, God says, You can continue on in spiritual leadership. And how apropos it was for us to be able to ordain two deacons that night. None of us are perfect. Without Psalm 51, you wouldn't have any pastors, and you wouldn't have any deacons, and you wouldn't have any Sunday school teachers, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any uh, leaders of choir or nursery or any leadership ministry, but because of the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And so tonight, we want to be able to look at David, the forgotten teenager. More has been written about David than any other biblical character. Abraham has some 14 chapters dedicated to his, his life in Genesis, and so does Joseph. Jacob has 11 chapters. Elijah has 10. How about David? There are 66 chapters about David in the Old Testament and 59 references in the New Testament. You find him in First and Second Samuel. You find him in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. Half of our Psalms uh, reveal his heart and love for God and his word. Twice he is called a man after God's own heart. Now, you could get the impression that he was some sort of of, uh, a spiritual superhero. But I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about David. He had the same temptations that you and I have today. And God gives us a front row seat to his life so we can learn, so we can be inspired by him. So what do we know about David's home? How did a teenage boy get the attention of God, the God in heaven during the reign of King Saul? And so we had... Looked a couple of weeks ago that the influences on his life, his home, his dad is named Jesse. He had seven older brothers. His culture, uh, Saul was anointed king at the end of the the dark period called the Judges, where every man did that, which was right in his own eyes. An awful spiritually dark period of time in Israel. His job, David spent many days, many nights away from family, away from friends. Why? He was a shepherd for a, a few family sheep. And then, what else we know about his home is, is uh, influences on his life were his personal choices. David made some personal choices, decisions about his relationship with God. We're going to discover that tonight. Now, David's family tree, as I mentioned, David's, David's father is Jesse, he's called the son of Jesse. David's grandfather is Obed, and David's great grandfather is Boaz. Now, Boaz is a godly great-grandfather, and we are introduced to him in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a pagan great-grandmother, but she turns to the Lord. A Moabite, an idolater, a pagan, but she turns to Jehovah God and becomes a believer. Some lessons we saw from Ruth and Boaz as it relates to family. If you have family that does not follow God, don't go back to their evil ways, and Ruth did not do that. Number two, you are not destined to be stuck by your family past. You can create a whole new beginning, and that's what happened in the life of Ruth and her descendants. You can begin a godly family tree. Number three, if you have family that does follow God, thank God for your foundation and keep growing closer to God. So this is the family tree of David. Between his family and his distaste for the carnal culture and his own personal choices, David, as a teenager, loves God so much that he has chosen to be the next king. Would you stand with me as I read 1 Samuel 16 as we are introduced to the forgotten teenager? 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or in the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him. Brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, "Arise, anoint him, for this is he." Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Father, thank you that the eyes of the Lord still run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for men and women, teenagers, and young people whose heart is perfect towards you. God, I pray, I pray that in this congregation there would be a congregation of people who love you, who care for the Word of God, who desire to shine your light in this lost world, that we might know our Savior. Father, I pray tonight we might be reminded of those things that you saw in David, and may you find them in us that we might be used filled, have the power of God in our lives, that we might exalt Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Have you ever thought about the early days of Saul and then compare that to the early days of David? Now, we don't have a lot of information, but their beginning years gives us some insight into their adult years and their rule. Saul's younger days. Do you remember why the Jews asked for a king? Because all the nations around them had a king, and they wanted, they wanted to look cool. They wanted to be like all the other city-states, and they've got kings. And, and, and besides that, Samuel the prophet had two young sons who were crooks, and the Jews did not want them to become Israel's future leadership. And so they asked Samuel for a king. And all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. First Samuel 8, 4 and 5. And Samuel is greatly distressed over this request. But God tells them what the real problem is. The real problem is not your son, Samuel. Here's the real problem: they have rejected me. They've rejected God's leadership in their lives. 1 Samuel 8:7. The Lord said to Samuel, "Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them." God tells Samuel to give the people what they requested. God had made provision. God had made provision in the law of Moses for a king. In fact, uh, there, were, there were several uh, qualifications. There were several guidelines. Kings are not to multiply wives. They're not to multiply horses and, and gold, and, and they're to read the Bible every day. There was instructions for a king. God had planned for a king, but it was not yet his perfect time. But he granted their request. 1 Samuel 9 Saul is anointed king and assumed the leadership almost immediately, but David had more of a a lengthy period of preparation. We, We don't find in Saul's character anything that would qualify him as a king. He was good looking and he was taller than most of the other Israelites. We might say that Saul was Israel's version of Goliath. Head and shoulders above everyone. Saul's father, do you remember his name? What was his name? Kish, not kiss, Kish. Uh, Kish is called a mighty man of power in 1 Samuel 9.1. So it's safe to say that, that Kish is a fairly wealthy man. We know he had a number of servants. We know he had a number of donkeys. And one of those donkeys, what happened to the donkey? He got, he got lost. And so who did he send out to find the donkey? Do you know the story? He sent out Saul and who else? A servant. Now, apparently, Saul is not as skillful as taking care of his father's donkeys as David was as taking care of his father's sheep. Right? We have a lost donkey after a couple of days of unsuccessful searching. Help me now. Who is eager to give up? Is it Saul or is it the servant? Saul, let's give up. And the servant says, No, no, I have an idea. What was his idea? Let's go and see someone. Who should we go and see? We should go see the seer, and the seer would be uh, it would it would be Samuel. Interesting. That idea didn't come to Saul, did it? The idea came to the servant. The servant had enough spiritual insight to say, "Hey, let's go. Let's go find the man of God. Maybe he can help us." Didn't occur to Saul. Right? The servant says, I know where the man of God is. He's kind of in touch with what's going on spiritually. Saul didn't have a clue. But nevertheless, Saul listens to the servant and they come and they find the seer, they find the prophet, and he says, Don't you worry, the donkey has been found and you are going to become the king and we know that he is anointed king Saul is to be the next king he sent him home and on the way home Saul joined in with a group of prophets and the spirit of God came upon him and he preached now the indwelling of the spirit of God is is different in the church age than from the old testament uh, you, uh, y- The idea would be that the Spirit of God came upon someone as if he, like to put on a coat, he was clothed with the Spirit of God, and so the Spirit of God could come and go. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because he knew the Holy Spirit had been taken from, from Saul. In the New Testament, we are sealed with the Spirit. We can never lose the Holy Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God comes upon Saul... And that does not mean that he is a believer, but the Spirit of God came upon him. It was was an anointing to to lead the people as king. And what he did, he preached. And when he preached with these prophets, the people were taken back, and they came up with a saying. Do you remember what the saying is? Is Saul also, what? Among the prophets. It's a bit of a mocking statement, it's out of character for Saul. You see, uh, Saul was not known for being a spiritual man. Saul's godliness was not the primary reason that God would allow him to be the first king. The Jews wanted a man who could lead them into war, and that's what God gave them. Though Saul had some early victories and gave God the glory, it was short-lived. Saul disobeyed again and again. He made foolish vows that almost cost the life of his own son, Jonathan. Saul became thin-skinned, hot-tempered, and had seasons of depression, even thoughts of murder. So much for the man who was the people's choice. Now let's compare the early days of Saul with David's early days. Turn back a couple of pages, 1 Samuel chapter 13, and in verse... 13 and 14. First Samuel 13. Now Saul fumbled again and again. And Samuel said to Saul, "Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God." Which he commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over the people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded. There's a couple of times that Saul disobeyed God. What is interesting is that God him, gave him the chance. You, you had the opportunity to become king, to establish a dynasty. But he fumbled. And so God is now looking for a man, a young man after his own heart. So God rejects Saul for a man who would be after his own heart. It's time for Samuel to stop grieving for Saul, uh, to get on with appointing the next king, Saul's replacement. And though Samuel is loyal to the king, he also fears that Saul will kill him if he hears about what God is telling him to do, and that brings us to chapter 16. If Saul hears that Samuel is going to anoint a new king, look what he says in verse 2. How can I go? If Saul will hear of it, he will kill me. This is his loyal prophet. But God gives Samuel instructions that will allow him to anoint the new king with a measure of privacy. Verse 2 and 3. Samuel's to go to Bethlehem, and he'll call for a sacrifice. Now look with me at five and six, one Samuel sixteen five. And he said peaceably, I am come uh, to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. It came to pass that when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Eliab is the one, right? I mean, this is Jesse's firstborn, the one who would normally take the headship in the family. Upon the father's passing, what did he see? Well, what he saw in Eliab was, was similar to King Saul-like qualities. But Saul is like the future King Herod who will kill any challenger to his throne. This man apparently was kingly. We would say he has a presidential look about him. He's tall, dark, and handsome. But God was not about to appoint another Saul to the throne. God was more interested in the heart of the future king, most interested. The people had it their way. Now God is going to have it his way. And that's not to say that Saul didn't have the opportunity he did, but he chose the sin of rebellion over the virtue of obedience and humility. What did God tell Samuel that he was looking for? And so we pick that up in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, as he is ready to choose a lie of the oldest Brother, the Lord said, "Look not in his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth; for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on, on the heart." And so, beginning at the oldest and working downward in age, Jesse had all of his sons pass by, and we have several of their names given to us here. And, and so you have Eliab, and then you have Abinadab, and and then you have Shama. And each time, Samuel says, Nope, not the one. Nope, not not this one. Nope, not this one. And you do that seven times, and Samuel's perplexed because God did not identify any of these men as his choice to be king. And so he asked Jesse, Do you have any more sons? Do you have any more kids? David was not invited to the choosing the new king party. (sighs) Where are you? The forgotten teenager. Why? Why? He's too young. He's out tending the flock of sheep while his older brothers attended the sacrifice. David is summoned. Verse 11 Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all thy children? Oh, there's one more, the youngest. He just keeps the sheep. Go fetch him. We will not sit down until he comes. David is summoned, and what do they see? And so now I introduce to you David verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. Ruddy could possibly mean that he is a redhead. He is handsome, goodly to look to. I, I want you to know that even though he is a handsome redhead, that is not why he is chosen. God somehow identifies to Samuel that this is the one. This young teenage boy is eventually to become the new king of Israel. Verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him, and the oil represents the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Where did David go? Where'd he go? Over to the palace in Jerusalem? Where'd he go? Back out of the hillside, back out to the sheep. Watch over the sheep. Not much changed until chapter 17 when David walked down into the valley of Elah full of faith and five smooth stones. After that eventful day, nothing would ever be the same. David is just a young teenager whose resume would have been short and simple. Shepherd. Shepherd. So what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Well, the first thing I think is very clear, and that would be spirituality. A man after God's own heart, a woman, a teenager after God's own heart. Now, that does not mean that you go around and tell people rather mystically, I consider myself a spiritual person. Has anybody ever said that to you? When you're a pastor, people say it to you all the time. And if they don't know Jesus, it means absolutely nothing. They don't know God, they don't know Jesus, they don't know the Bible, they don't read the Bible, but they they just really like to say, I consider myself a spiritual person. That's not what we're talking about here. Spirituality. Spirituality is someone who does know the Lord. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? It's a person whose life is in, in harmony with the Lord. Someone who believes in God, someone who trusts God, someone who obeys God, someone who follows the Bible. It means that whatever is important to God is important to you. Whatever burdens Him burdens you. When He says, go right, you go right. When He says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When He says, this is wrong, I want you to change, you agree with God and you change. You say, you say yes sir, and you obey because you have a heart for God. To be spiritual is to be a, a Bible believer and a Bible follower. Spiritual people are described in Second Chronicles sixteen nine, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in, in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Not perfection, but a desire to grow and mature and to love what God loves. That means when you are, uh, that means there are no locked rooms in your life or your heart. That means when you do wrong, you admit it. Immediately you come to terms with it. You, you grieve when you displease the Lord. You long in your heart to please him. A man or woman after God's own heart is spiritual. And secondly, the second quality is that of humility humility. David was faithfully keeping his father's sheep. God saw humility in his heart. He saw a servant's heart. If you want confirmation of that, turn to Psalm 78, 70. Let me read it to you. He chose David also his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds. It's not about giftedness. It's not about charisma. It's not about public image. It's about character, and David was humble. Humility is, is uh, You do what you're told to do. That's humility. You don't rebel. You respect those in charge. You believe that God has sovereignly put the people over you in the institutions that God has created. What are the institutions that God has created? There there are three. Name them family, government, church. It's not complicated. God created three institutions. He puts leaders in those institutions. And humility is someone who will will come under and submit and follow in those institutions. People claim humility, but it is revealed when the God-appointed leader, whether they're saved or unsaved, when the God-appointed leader over them asks them to do something they don't want to do. Humility is revealed or pride is revealed. Now, I'm not talking about breaking one of the Ten Commandments. We saw a great example of humility this morning with Paul, didn't we? When the Christians in Jerusalem asked him to participate in a purification vow, he did not want to do that. Acts as a time of transition go to the Jews, uh, go to the Samaritans, go to the Gentiles. It's a time of transition. It's a transitional book. God brought an end to Jewish worship in 70 A.D. Paul was gracious. Paul was humble. And Paul took the the vow of purification, shaved his head to the Jew, became a a Jew that I might reach the Jews. David's the same way. David just served faithfully. He served quietly, unnoticed, and all but forgotten by family and friends. But God saw him. Under the stars each night on the foothills that surround Bethlehem, David was a servant. He, and a servant doesn't care who gets the glory. While David's three older brothers are off in the army and they're, they're making rank and they're fighting big impressive battles, David is all alone keeping the sheep. So what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? It's, it's to be spiritual. It's to be humble. It's to have integrity. Psalm 78, from following the ewes, Great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people, the Israelites, and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Integrity. God is looking for, I mean, just honest to the core servants who have integrity. What are some of the synonyms for the Hebrew word for integrity found in Psalm 78, 72? Complete whole, innocent, having simplicity of life, wholesome, sound isn't that a beautiful description? Integrity is what you are when nobody is looking. You know today today we live in a world that says in many ways if you just make a good impression that's all that matters. But God is not looking for phonies God is not looking for fakes. You cannot fake it with the almighty God can you? He knows what's on the inside. He looks in the heart. Uh, So that's that's some of the qualities that we see in a man after God's own heart. Let's see how God trained him. How did God train David? First of all, he trained him in solitude, in solitude. David needed time alone with God before he could be trusted with the responsibilities and the rewards of public life. Listen to what F.B. Myers wrote. Uh, Nature was his nurse, his companion, his teacher, Bethlehem is situated six miles to the south of Jerusalem by the main road leading to Hebron. On the northeast slope of a long gray ridge uh, with a deep valley on either side, which unite at some distance to the east and run down to the, toward the Dead Sea. On the gentle slopes of the hills, the fig, olive, and vine grow... Luxuriantly, and in the valley are the rich cornfields where Ruth once gleaned and which gave the place its name, the House of Bread. The shepherds have always led and watched their flocks, and there David first learned the knowledge of natural scenery that colored all his afterlife and poetry. Such were the schools and schoolmasters of his youth. You, you can't help but read the Psalms and think this, is, uh, th- this imagery that, that David communicates in those Psalms that we still sing today, it, it came from being a shepherd out in those hills. Psalm 23, solitude is a master teacher. If you can't stand to be alone with yourself, you have deep unresolved conflicts in your inner life. When was the last time you got all alone with nature and you just soaked it in, so alone that the sound of silence seemed deafening? That's where David lived. And that's where he learned to be king in solitude. Under the stars, hundreds of nights as he sat alone under the stars, he felt the blustery winds of autumn, the cold rains of winter. He learned to endure the burning rays of the summer sun all by himself, just him and God. How did God train David? In obscurity. And that comes right from the solitude. Men and women of God learn best in obscurity. The people that God uses the most had a time of being unknown, a time of being unseen, unappreciated, unapplauded. And here's where character is built. If you will accept the silence of obscurity, you may be ready one day to handle the applause of popularity. Here's a third training ground, and that would be Monotony. Monotony. Things you don't sign up for, right? Uh, that means to be faithful in the menial, faithful in the insignificant, faithful in the routine, faithful in the regular, faithful in the unexciting daily tasks of life. It means do your homework. Do your homework. When you go in for surgery, don't you want a surgeon who stayed up late and did his homework? Don't you want a surgeon who made A's and B's and not C's and D's? Have, have you seen that, that commercial? where the man is getting ready for surgery. And they ask the nurse, have you ever worked with Dr. Davis? Yes, he's okay. <laughs> and the wife said, just okay? And just then the surgeon walks in and says, oh, guess who just got reinstated? <laughs> well, not officially. <laughs> the doctor looks at the guy in the bed and says, nervous? The man says, yeah. The doctor says, yeah, me too. don't worry about it we'll figure it out (laughs) we'll figure it out Uh, just okay is not okay it's in the monotony it's in the routine the bible reading the bible meditation the bible memorization it's turning on the Christian music and not the secular music. Your spiritual roots grow deep. So when the storm comes, the tree of life stands strong. It's, It's building on the strong foundation that Jesus said in Matthew 7, build your life on the rock. And when the storm comes, your life will stand. We just sang that tonight. And now the storm has come to the Hamilton family. But he believes God is good. God is only good. Even when there's Alzheimer. And dementia. And cancer. And heart attack. One pilot said, Life is a lot like flying. Flying is nothing more than hours and hours of monotony punctuated by a few seconds of sheer panic. (laughs) That's called the uh, uh, takeoff and landing. Learning to be a man or woman or teenager of God is endless hours of of training. And the last training ground is, is in reality. Up until now you might have the feeling that Despite the solitude and obscurity and monotony that David was just sitting on some hilltop composing a great piece of music, uh, relaxing in the pastures, uh, sipping a cup of cold water from the stream, having a great time watching those sheep, and they're all around him and, and uh, lying down on their hind, uh, hind feet. Not true. We'll see ahead in 1 Samuel 17 in a couple of weeks when David stands before King Saul and he says, I want to take down that giant. And Saul says, No way, you're you're but a youth. And he is a, a man of war from his youth. David says, I, not a problem. Not a problem. When a lion and a bear came after Dad's sheep, I rescued the sheep and I killed those wild animals. David understands his surroundings. There is danger lurking around those sheep. And David is in he's in touch with reality, he's in touch with his circumstances. David has been facing reality long before Goliath came along. Getting alone with God does not mean you sit in some closet and think about God and in and, and, and infinity. No, no, it means you get alone and discover how to be more responsible and how to be more diligent in all the areas of your life that you're balanced, whether that means fighting lions or bears or simply following orders from a leader you disagree with. You can read supposedly spiritual books as I have done over the years called The Deeper Life. Watchman knee and Witness Lee. Deeper Life. And the Deeper Life books say you can stand back and then God does everything. He does everything for you. When was the last time you had an angel fix a flat tire for you? <laughs> Moms, when the last time a, an angel changed the diaper in one of your your babies. When's the last time you saw an angel put their arm around someone who just lost a loved one? Neither did David. He rolled up his sleeves and he fought for those sheep. God was training David in the reality of the difficult circumstances. Here's some closing lessons. It's it's in the little things and in the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of big things. Are, are you willing, are you willing to do the little things, the, the right things? You do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. Because it's right. You just, you just do right. If you want to be a person with a large vision, you must cultivate this habit of doing the little things well. And that's when God will put iron in your bones. Secondly, when God develops our inner qualities, he's never in a hurry. Alan Redpath, the late pastor of the Moody Memorial Church, put it this way. He said, The conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. When God develops character, He works on it throughout our lifetime. We have not yet arrived. I have it, you have it, and you won't until you step into eternity. God develops character all the way to the end of our life, He's never in a hurry. And so, in the schoolroom of solitude and obscurity and monotony, God is, He's building our character. And so, when, when you get frustrated with someone else, when someone else doesn't see it your way, they haven't arrived at your conclusion yet, give them some time. Give them some time. God does. God does. And maybe. God is using them to develop develop your character of patience with people that don't see it the way you see it. A man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, loving what God loves, burdened what God's burdened over, desiring to please God, hating what God hates. And the forgotten teenager became one of the most famous men in world history. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for David being faithful in the little things, the things that matter most. Loving you. Thank you for his heart revealed in the Psalms. May it be our desire this week to be in your word, to meditate upon your truth, but then to live it out when we come in contact with people, to talk about you, to talk about what you've done for us. May we be as passionate about sharing our faith as we are about the non-essentials, that people might see Christ who has saved us given us peace and joy, who's given us the confidence of heaven. And so with David, we will sing. We will sing among the people. We will sing among the nations. We will sing a song of praise because our God is great. Bless our invitation now. I ask in Jesus' name, amen we stand together. My Jesus, I love thee. As we stand, as we sing together, we have something to sing about. We have a song in our heart because our God is great. Let's sing it as unto him this evening. My Jesus, I love thee.